We are beginning a new series this morning. By the way, my name is Jack. I'm Bethany Northeast lead pastor, and it's good to see some new faces this morning. So um, I think it's Easter tide. So you know, our friend and the church down the hall, Presbyterian Church, this is what they call Easter tide, and I don't even know what that means. They just somebody greeted me this morning. Happy Easter tide. I was like, cool. <laughs> That's great. And I'm Presbyterian. So. Um, But we're starting a new series today, and it's called Women of the Bible. In fact, in your bulletin this morning, there's a little paragraph that I wrote that just kind of describes everything except the last sentence, which looks like it's a holdover from Good Friday. I apologize about that. It says something about grief and suffering, Jesus' death. Just that that shouldn't be there. But the first part um, helps describe this series a little bit to you if you're curious what, what this series is really all about. And I'll do some of that in the beginning of the sermon as well. So let's take a moment to pray, and, uh, and we'll dive in. God, thank you for this opportunity we have to get into your word for this very old story that uh, speaks as loud today, I think, as it ever did, God. So we pray for your spirit to uh, be our teacher this morning, and that this word would, would not just be interesting, but that it would be transformative to us, that you would change our lives because of it. And uh, as we leave this place, God, as you shape us to be a people that, f- that not only follow you, but also reflect you to the world around us, that you would teach us how that looks this morning through this word. And so we submit ourselves to your word this, in this moment ahead, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin by making a little bit of a stark observation this morning, which is this. Um, I want to acknowledge the Bible's origins in a patriarchal culture. Uh, you've probably noticed that most of the Bible stories are about men, if you've read the Bible very much. Even though it's a good bet that um, in those days, in the Bible's days, similar to today, about 50% of the population were women. So you have 90% of the stories about men, and yet uh, ha- at least half the population were women. And thus, historically, there's been this paradigm, this cultural paradigm, that's confined, as a consequence of that, that's confined women within the church, and has prohibited them from fully participating in the work of God. You'll find, even in Seattle today, churches where women are prevented from serving in positions of leadership, like deacons or elders or pastors. We just happen to be a church where we have two prominent women in our church that are significant leaders. This church would not function today without Becca and Jenny. It just wouldn't. And many of you. And, uh, and that's just really a reflection of, of the culture in which we live. I'll just say that as well. In a recent Fortune magazine survey of 16 of the top 500 Fortune 500 companies, they found that a staggering 8 in 10 senior executives are white men in those companies. Those companies represent 800,000 U.S. employees. And 8 in 10 of those companies have men, white men, as their senior executives. 93.6% of those companies have male CEOs. And, and, and so this patriarchal bias of the Bible, what I'm trying to say, is not unique, but here's the thing. It has to be addressed. It has to be addressed, which is one of the reasons we're going into this series right now. One of my seminary professors who specializes in this subject, she wrote a book a few years back. Her name is Jacqueline Lapsley, and she was my Hebrew professor. And there's so many stories I could tell you about her. But she has this book she wrote a few years ago called Whispering the Word, Hearing Women's Stories in the Old Testament. And I would just encourage anyone who's interested in this topic, to read that book. It's really fascinating. Over the weeks, we'll probably be using it a little bit. But here's a quote from the book. She says, The patriarchal nature of the text must be squarely faced by both men and women. 
And readers must recognize the extent to which the values, norms, and norms embedded in the Bible are distinctively masculine, although they are most often presented as universally valid. The particularity of women's lives and experiences are only marginally represented in the Bible, and women are not infrequently presented as objects of male activity and as subordinate to the desires and designs of men. In short, women in many biblical contexts are not ascribed the same full human status that men are. And yet, listen to this. This is the most important part of what she says, though that's really good. The difficulties posed by these disturbing aspects of the Bible do not mean that biblical narratives must be read reductively and our interpretations are like this. Oh, well, that's just the way it is, and we throw our Bibles out the window. In fact, I was sitting in class one day with Dr. Lapsley, and we were reading one of the stories one of the texts of terror, the story of Tamar, and perhaps you know that story. And uh, she invited this student in my class, a, a young woman who, one of my classmates, to read the story for the class. And this young student said, I can't. And she said, well, why? She said, well, because I don't have my Bible. This is before uh, cell phones. That's how kind of old I am. So we didn't have Bibles on our phones. And, and Dr. Lapsley said, why don't you have your Bible? That's required for class. And she said, well, I threw it out my dorm window yesterday when I got to this story. <laughs> Which is really interesting. We can't just throw the Bible out like that when we get to stories like those. And she says this after kind of that idea. Many texts are patriarchal in some respects and yet are still about something else as well. They're patriarchal, and yet there's something about, they're about something else as well. Neither implicit patriarchy nor even explicit affirmation of patriarchal values exhausts the meaning of the Bible. It doesn't do it. And then she says this, and this is where I want you to sort of, what I want to hone in on. To read the Bible as Scripture, sacred Word of God, means operating out of a foundational assumption that the text is trying to shape us, all of us, male and female alike, in life-affirming ways. And so we must listen most carefully when we suspect that the word is being whispered and not shouted. We must listen most carefully when we suspect the word is being whispered and not shouted. Here's the application. Women often whisper in the Bible as minor characters in major plots, uh, acting courageously in a culture that doesn't value their courage. And what's more, women speak in the Bible... (laughs) often just a couple lines in a narrative. They speak truth to power. They speak words of knowledge and declare great faith. Uh, And when they do, we need to pay attention to their words because that's a hard thing to do in a culture that doesn't value your speaking. And since Shipra and Pua, the midwives in this salvation story in Exodus, uh, are both named and speak. (laughs) Uh, By the way, Pharaoh was not named. (laughs) Did you notice that? They're named and they speak. We should pay double attention to their story, and so we will this morning. And while it's likely that none of us are are being confronted with a corality of infanticide that they were, uh, we are being faced with a daily challenge and opportunity to live courageously within the story of God. All of us are. And so whether as men or women, young or old, married, single, majority culture, minority culture, it doesn't matter where you come from, we're all being invited to contribute to God's salvation story, just like Shipra and Pua were. And thus, this morning, what I want to do is explore a few aspects of their courage, the courage it took for them to to do what they did, to say what they said, and how that might inspire and inform us to live courageously as you leave this building today, okay? And then tomorrow as you go to work, as you try and raise your family, you know, as you share Christ with a friend, 
Okay, so we'll look at a few aspects, and those are outlined in your bulletin there, okay? Are you with me? So the first thing I want to look at is the context, and you'll see this in verse 15 uh, specifically, but in the broader story, and that's why I had Jen read from verse 8 and on. Uh, And the context really uh, informs their calling. So a couple things here we're going to look at. So first, the context. In the first few verses of Exodus, if you have it open, that'd be great. Uh, We learn that the family of Joseph and Jacob, who are these patriarchs, they came down to Egypt to escape a famine. We're told that they've, they've died, okay? And we learn that after they die, this new king, the new pharaoh, arises in Egypt, and he doesn't, he doesn't only not know of them, which is kind of funny to me, but he doesn't seem to care. He cared nothing for these people. Instead, he, is, he seems to be threatened by this large and growing and increasingly powerful group of people within his borders that have their own distinct cultural identity, the, the Israelites. So in verse 9, he says, look, assuming to his, his kind of uh, cabinet, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them, or they're going to become more numerous, and if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, and then they'll leave. <laughs> and so uh, we're told what he does is he puts Egyptian slave masters over them to oppress them and with forced labors, make their lives bitter with ruthless work. And we kind of know that story. This is not news to us. Uh, However, the part we might not know as well is what happens next. When that plan doesn't work entirely, I mean, like the monuments are built, right? Ramses and and those things. And, And yet, and the Israelites are suffering in the process greatly. And yet, despite that oppression, what does it say in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied which is, of course, an amazing statement. That's probably a sermon for another day. Uh, and it's an amazing thing. But it so enraged this king that he, that he turned his, from this murderous, from this oppression to this murderous sort of genocidal plan to, to, he concocts this idea of mass slaughter of the Israelites, starting with the Israelite boys, which is where we meet Shipra and Pua, these midwives in, in the story. And where it's imperative that we kind of focus in on, on their unique calling as midwives, okay? So that's the context. Here's their calling. They're going to be the ones in his economy that are in the right place at the right time to do the thing, to, to kind of carry out this plan for genocide. And there's a, there's a little side note here. There's a debate by scholars whether or not Shipra and Pua are Hebrew or Gentile, okay? Whether they're Egyptians or whether they're Israelites. Uh, they have Israelite Jewish names, and so there's a, there's a debate whether or not they're being coerced into this by Pharaoh or whether they're uh, midwives who serve the Hebrews. And so they're serving as sort of double agents. And you know what? Though that's a scintillating plot, it doesn't matter whether they're Hebrew or whether they're Egyptian. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because what we see in the story is that their calling as midwives has transcended the cultural or national or political allegiances they might have. It's totally transcended that. Shipra and Pua are first and foremost midwives to the Hebrews. And why is that significant? Let me just give you a couple reasons. First, to be a midwife, literally, if you look it up, means to be with women, to help women, specifically in the birthing process. Both of our children, Elliot and Marn, we had midwives. We had Marn in a hospital in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, our great German midwife, what was her name, Elizabeth? Ursula, man, how about that? I mean, we, uh, we didn't have, uh, we had a long, Elizabeth, I won't go into much detail, but we had a little bit of a longer labor with Marin. 
And there was this woman down the hall who had been, we just could hear her, a single woman in labor for like 24 hours. And Ursula comes into us and says, you're doing fine. And literally goes down the hall. We never saw her again until after Martin's, like, time to, time to have her. Okay, Ursula comes back. Because she knew her calling to be with this woman who was alone and in a, an intense pain to help her in the birthing process. And if any, if any of you know about the birthing process, you know it's very difficult and painful, especially the moms here. And in that day, very risky, extremely risky. The, the rates of infant mortality at that time were staggering, staggering, before modern medicine. And thus, midwives had this unique power, and that is the power to increase the chance of life and to reduce the risk of death. That's their calling. That's who they are. And, it, and, and it's that context of suffering into which these women are inserted, the real possibility of death, and yet the real chance of giving life to people, that informs their decision. Uh, the, you see, this king is ordering them to violate their calling, to completely violate uh, this idea that they are to do no harm, to give life to people, and thus they won't have any of it. They know who, who they are, who they're called to be, and they won't have any part in his game plan. In verse 17, it says, The midwives feared God and did not do what the Pharaoh told them to do. They let the boys live. They gave birth to these children. So Shipra and Puah conspired together for life, for God and for the Hebrew people. Because they understood what it meant to be called by God, to respond to God's calling. And that's what Pharaoh didn't know. He doesn't understand what it means to be called. <laughs> he, he thinks he can use power as a human ruler and fear to inspire a response. And they understood what it means to be called. Do you understand what calling is? This is what I want to take a moment to talk about. You and I have to be able to say, in our own way, in our own context, amidst our own calling, I don't work for Pharaoh. I don't serve Pharaoh. Whoever Pharaoh is in your life, it might be the company you work for, it might be the government and its leaders that, that uh, have authority over us, we don't serve them as followers of God. Never. We are servants of God, called by God. We're stewards of what God has given us and called us to do, first and foremost, and really only. You have to say, when you go into work tomorrow, friends, when you walk out the door into the world and you have a difficult decision, you face the challenges of living in this world, we all face them, and they're bigger than this disgusting weather. <laughs> you look up, you, you don't know what to do next. I'm here doing this thing, whatever it is, living this life, to contribute to the story of God and to be useful to people, to bring life into the world of death and decay. That's my calling. Remember that place in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says this. He sums up the gospel so beautifully. Uh, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Because of God's great love for us, God, who's so rich in mercy, made us alive. God's all about life. He made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. God raised us up with Christ, seated us at it with him in the heavenly realms, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. And then listen to this. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by your own works. It's a gift of God because you are God's handiwork. Called in Christ to do the good works that God's prepared in advance for you to do. That's the reality of our lives. We've been made alive with Christ, created to do the work of giving life to the world around us. Whether we write code, sell houses, raise children, lead churches, we're called by God to be stewards of life. That's it. We're created in grace for life. That's kind of how I would summarize Ephesians 2. 
That's, and that's what the story of God's all about. And Shipra and Puah are showing us that. That every actor in the salvation story of God, beginning with them, you know the Exodus doesn't get started without them. That's, I was telling uh, the pastor down the hall here, Jesse, that without Shipra and Puah, it's a real short Bible. You got one book and then a verse or two. They are, the, the story hangs on them. And beginning there and then through and down to each one of us here today as we live inside the story of God, we are agents for discovering and declaring and bringing about that work of life-giving to the world. A world that's suffering from death. That's who they are. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's what we're created to be. And here's, so here's the question I want to give you as we transition. When you go into work in the morning, whether it's Amazon, a startup, whether you teach in a school or you teach at home, you, you're called to be at home with your children in this season, are you being everything you were created to be? Are you using the gifts and capacities you've been given in the way that God intends them to be used for life, not just to get a paycheck, not just to get your kids out of the house? That's what it means to live in response to the, and answer the calling of God. God's called you into something. He's created you from something. He's given you capacities, gifts, and strengths for something, no matter how high or low you are, how much or little you make, the biblical understanding is that whatever you do, when you do it in a way that's consistent with God's intent for all of us, which is to give life, you are not only bringing honor to God, but you are playing a vital role in the ongoing story of God, okay? So which leads us to the second point, okay? So that's the context and the calling related to it, the catalyst, that, that really, the thing that for Shipra and Pua that, that moves them into this calling, okay, that motivates them to respond this way. And you see it in verse 17 where we're told this. The midwives feared God, Shipra and Pua feared God, and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. I want to park there for the rest of the morning. So what's the catalyst for their courageous defiance of Pharaoh? And what propels them to respond in this way? It's this, the fear of God. That's it. They feared God and didn't do what he, did, he told them to do. Um, which begs this question, this meta question for us, what's the fear of God? What is it? Now, many of us, I want to talk about it by first telling you what it's not. Many of us, we, we think it's terror. Like we functionally are afraid of God. We, we're afraid of not obeying God. We're afraid of the consequences of God. We're afraid, we think the fear of God is a, is a feeling of apprehension, right? Uh, of deep foreboding that that's why most of us don't understand what the fear of God is. And we, we try and put it in different words. We don't like that phrase in the Old Testament. We don't like it when it comes up. We think that God's this bad guy. Many people have an apprehension of God. We're scared of the consequences of disobeying God. We're scared of the punishment for sin, of our obstinance, of our stubbornness. Has, is that you? I mean, have you ever felt that about God sometimes? Many of us live our lives this kind of fear. In fact, there are people who, who live in terror of God. They think of God like Michael from the office, just leering over his desk, you know, messing things up or waiting to, to, you know, for us to mess up. Or like Bruce Almighty, he's just playing like a video game with our lives. Or like Pharaoh here, this maniacal, abusive, homicidal kind of figure, you know. And let me just say right there, I know, I, I'm, I know I'm preaching the choir here, but I'm just saying it because this isn't a true picture of God. You cannot read the Bible and get that picture of God. God is kind, God is good, God is gracious. And so the, the fear of God cannot be terror. God is not a terror God. So what is the fear of God? What does it mean to fear God? 
and for us to understand what Shipra and Pua are responding to. Well, uh, let's look at a couple examples in Scripture that help inform that. One in particular, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, which comes right after Exodus, sort of a question that comes up. What does the Lord require of you? And this is what Deuteronomy 10.12 says. Fear the Lord, walk in His ways, love Him, and serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. Fear the Lord, walk in His ways, love Him, and serve Him with all your heart and your soul. Now notice there, it doesn't say that fearing God is, it says there that fearing God is connected to walking with God and loving God. They're connected, okay? It doesn't say you can either fear God or you can love God. You have a choice there. Fear God, love God, one or the other. It says that the more you fear Him, the more you'll love Him. The more you walk with Him, the more you'll fear Him. Does this make sense to you? And so even though 1 John 4, we all know this verse, says that perfect love casts out fear, that's not the kind of fear the fear of God is. There is that kind of fear in the world. It's not the kind of fear that Exodus is talking about with Shipra and Pua. The fear of God, listen to this, is intimately involved with and connected to the love of God, which seems like a paradox, and it is. It's actually very fascinating when you probe deeper into this. When fear, as I was just describing it, terror, apprehension, foreboding, when it grips you, what happens? You become very self-absorbed, right? And uh, extremely aware of your needs, the danger around you, so aware that you become paralyzed. There was this time, mid-20s, we were over in Spokane at this camp, Camp Spalding, uh, for this retreat thing. And, uh, you know, there's this cliff there. It used to be there. I don't think it's there anymore. You can jump off into the lake there. And so I go out with some friends and <clears throat> hike up to the top. And I'm standing there. And I've jumped off cliffs before, you know. I can do this. And I get up there. And uh, these, these young boys kind of canoe up. And I'm there with my buddy. And he jumps off. And I felt this paralyzing fear. To the degree, I mean, these kids are like looking at me and I'm feeling like maybe it's performance anxiety. I don't know. Uh, I literally, it, it wasn't even that big of a cliff. I'm just being honest. I walked down and they were laughing. Like it was just the most embarrassing thing because I was so self-absorbed, worried like what if I flop? What if I, I don't even know. I'm trying to be something that maybe I'm not. And I know that's a silly example, but that's why we say fear paralyzes us because it's, it, it, it's, something about, it's something in there about self-absorption. And that's why fear is the opposite of love. Listen to this. The Bible doesn't say the opposite of love is hate. It says the opposite of love is fear. Fear and love are just total opposites. When you get into a relationship, for example, and you say, I'm going to love you as long as, as long as you don't hurt me, as long as you don't disappoint me in any way, as long as you don't let me down, I'll love you. As long as you don't discourage me or disillusion me. That, that's not love. It's something else. Fear is totally absorbed with your own needs. While love is totally absorbed in the needs of the other. Okay? Fear says, I can't take a risk on you. I can't take a risk on this relationship. Love opens itself up to be vulnerable. Take big risks for hurt. Sometimes that cause pain. The fear of God can only, listen, according to Deuteronomy, according to that sort of economy, can only be experienced alongside the love of God, vulnerability, openness to risk and pain and hurt. And therefore, it's possible for God to be someone you believe in deeply. For you, to, if you sit in here this morning, to, you're a Christian, to believe deeply in Jesus, be devoted to him, committed to his mission, and yet also never have experienced the fear of God. Because you don't understand the love of God. You've never had a, an inside experience of the love of God. There's this place in John's gospel, I think it's in chapter 5, 
were the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'd all be Pharisees. Are sitting with Jesus. And they're engaged in a conflict around where he gets the authority to say and do what he does. How does he get off saying these things and doing these things? Goes back and forth for a bit until Jesus just completely roasts them. In John 5, 39, he says, you study the scriptures all day long. You're at Bible study. You're there in church. Because you think, he says in John 5, 39, that in them you have eternal life. But these scriptures are there to testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to find that life. See, he's saying it's possible to believe in God, to know all the right stuff, to have a confession of faith, but also possible for God to not be the passion of your life, for, to, not, to miss the main thing, for God to not be the main thing, the thing you're living for, the one for whom you wake up in the morning and go to work, and, and the one for whom you raise your family. That, and unless God is your main thing, your passion for living, the, your desire you won't understand or experience the fear of God. You can't. Because the fear of God and the love of God go together. Uh, God will just be a terror to you. You'll be afraid of the consequences of things. God must m- be moved from being a concept, friends, an idea that, to being the main thing your heart's after, uh, the thing you're waking up and living for, the person you're most afraid of losing, uh, the one you're most afraid of being out of touch with, of hearing a word from, a blessing or a consolation or correction. So the fear come of Lord comes from knowing the Lord, not just knowing about God, but knowing God. And, and you're going to experience that as you get close to God and get a sense of, of God's greatness on your heart and then respond to that. And that's where we come back to Shipper and Pua and where their story, the power of their story is. See, they don't kill these boys, the Hebrew boys. They deliver them, which means this, they held them. I watched, I watched Ursula deliver my daughter, Maren. And I watched our midwife in Pennsylvania deliver Elliot. Yeah, I got to hold the baby. I got to hold you, son, after you were born. But it was the midwife who, who drew that baby out, blessed them, cleaned him up, and handed them to me or to Elizabeth. Protected them from the agent of death, Pharaoh. And though these boys themselves are not gods, they're not. It's just boys. Shepherd and Pooh are unambiguously, listen to this, entering into the story of God's love. Where God's not merely a pillar of cloud and fire as he'll reveal himself to be later in Exodus. He's not just a parted Red Sea that's going to cave in upon their enemies. Love those stories. God's not a distant voice from a mountaintop. He's not just that. God's a small child. See, they may not know. God's a small child, noble, killable, vulnerable, blessable, holdable. Throughout the story of God, that's how God reveals himself. We know that. We get that. We have the Gospels. But God's showing himself that way here with Shipra and Pua as real, intimately noble. Again and again and again, that's how God reveals himself because he wants to be our fear, our passion, our reason for living, our meaning, our great love in life. So have you, here's the question. Have you drawn that near to God? You have relationships. There's a lot of good relationships in this room. Have you drawn that near to the greatness and beauty of God? Gotten intimate with God with your heart and with your hands? Uh, I think that's a pretty big question for us. Is God your fear? And if he is, if you'll get close enough to see him and look genuinely for God for your significance and security and identity, then you'll 
possess the bold courage Shipper employed it? You will. See, like them, you'll be willing to do this uncomfortable thing, which was to not do what the Pharaoh told them to do, let the boys live. They feared God, so their choices were not defined by career preservation, political tides, or whatever issue, if it was the issue of saving Jewish boys from genocide, if it was popular or not. The beauty of the fear of God is that none of that stuff matters to them. The only thing that they care about, if they could have read forward the story, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? Justice, mercy, walking humbly, or Deuteronomy 10, to, to know God, walk with God, have God rest on your soul and your heart. That's what I care about. The fear of God is a catalyst for that walking into that kind of discomfort in life. And when we choose to be uncomfortable in response, we've, and when we chose to choose to step out in faith in response, we are now advancing the story of God whenever we do that, much like they did 3,400 years ago. And I'm certain, I'm nearly 100% certain, they had no idea the magnitude of that choice. No idea. They were just living into their calling. They had, the, the courageous act of civil disobedience for them was a, was a response to their sense of call and their experience of God. How could they have known that this small but significant decision for life was going to write the whole story of Exodus? How could they have known that the Exodus would bring about the incarnation? How could they have known that we'll be sitting here today telling their story 3,000 years later? They couldn't have known that. And yet they didn't care because God was their fear. And their reason for living and responding the way they did. They didn't care. They probably will care that you're here today. <laughs> I care that you're here. Thank you for being here. But they, God was all they cared about. There's this old Jewish proverb that says this, and I'll, I'll just invite our worship team forward now. It, it, you, you probably heard this in the, the Schindler's List movie. Whoever saves a single life saves an entire universe or saves the, the world entire. Remember that scene in Schindler's List at the very end? It's this principle that recognizes that small things and decisions have the power for monumental changes. And you see, Pharaoh's schemes fail because he underestimates that power. The, the creative power of these women to do small and courageous things, defiantly deliver baby boys, they don't live in fear of Pharaoh. They don't fear, live in fear of death. They live in fear and awe of God, the God of life. And in that way, they become midwives to the entire salvation story of God. And in this larger theological sense, Pharaoh just vastly, fatally underestimates the power of God to work deliverance through these small things, small decisions, small acts of courage. Do we, today, how often do we underestimate God's power to work deliverance through just small things, small decisions, small acts of courage? Do we know the power of God to course through our lives, men and women alike, Young and old alike. Uh, where is God calling you? Think of this as we respond. To, to step out into discomfort, in courage, in faith, to advance the story of life. It's all about, the story of God is all about life and life to the full, as John 10.10 10 says. Where are you being invited to step out into that story? You know, as I'm pondering the, my answer to that question right now, they say that the best sermons are the ones you preach to your own heart. <laughs> I think about raising our kids and stepping out into that story in a world that doesn't honor uh, children the way it should and stepping out and raising our kids in a way that would honor God and just showing up and just being there through the highs and the lows. And we go through some low points as a family. 
I'm also thinking about, uh, you know, I used to do a lot of prison ministry and spend time in jails. And I got to Seattle and King County Jail doesn't like chaplains or whatever. They didn't have that. So I kind of just pieced out on that and got busy. <laughs> I kind of think about uh, men locked in prison and how much how alive I come there with those men. Because I'm, there's an opportunity to tell these men, locked behind doors, there's still life for you. Where are you being invited to step out in courage for the story of life? Wherever you go today and tomorrow and the next day. Might we know the answer to that question, friends, in greater and greater degree through these two amazing women, Shipra and Pua, whose names you may not have known until today. Might those names be on your heart this week as you think about your story. So today I just want to pray for us, uh, for an infilling of this sort of bold, scary courage that would inf- just run through our lives, come into our lives, work powerfully through our lives, okay? Um, overwhelm us with God's love, okay? So will you just bow your heads and pray with me, and we'll respond. God, would you overwhelm us with your love? Would our response to your love uh, be extraordinary courage, unbelievable courage, supernatural courage, God, not courage that we could conjure up or I could conjure up through a sermon, but the kind that comes into our lives through your spirit like you did Shipra and Pua, unexplainable. That's an unexplainable thing they did, God. In the face of great threats to life, they responded with faith. Might we? God, you are our fear, which means you are our love. We love you, God. You're the one in whom we put our hope. You're a redeemer of not only our lives, but then the world around us. And so as we look out these windows right now, God, we see a world that's in fear of things. God, would you break that fear with your love? And might we all turn to you as we do now in worship. It's in Christ's name that we pray.